Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. San Jose is one of the defining cities of the mid-20th century. Just 9% of the housing stock was built before 1950. So when San Jose was in its high-growth phase, it was not in the era of streetcar suburbs or the denser cities of the 19th century. Instead, this was a city built around the car, low-density, single-family homes connected up via highways to the emerging jobs of Silicon Valley. To meet the climate goals laid out by legislators, San Jose and the rest of California must prepare for a future that's denser, less sprawling, less dependent on automobiles. Can San Jose become that kind of city? That's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. There's something about the low-density sprawl of San Jose's neighborhoods that feels so familiar. If you put me down in a car anywhere on the grid, I bet I could find my way to a taco or a CVS within like seven minutes, just using only native West Coast navigation instinct. But without a car, it's another story. It's not a walkable place. Los Angeles has 30 zip codes that are denser than San Jose's densest. Closer to home, 17 of San Francisco's 27 zip codes are denser than San Jose's densest zip code. So building a walkable place out of the defining city of the autocentric mid-century, it's a tall order. But it's also one that residents and the city government have accepted should happen for more than a decade. Here to talk with us about how to implement the vision, we're joined by Adidi Bunlamudi, housing reporter with KQED. Welcome, Adidi. Hey, Alexis. Joined by Chris Elmendorf, a professor at the University of California Davis School of Law. Welcome, Chris. Nice to be here. Thanks. And we've got Michael Brio, who is director, deputy director of planning at the city of San Jose. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. So, Aditi, tell us about your reporting on San Jose. I mean, what did you find out about how the city has tried to become a more dense place? 
Yeah, I mean, so last year, um, as part of KQED's sold out podcast, I went to San Jose. San Jose is really near and dear to my heart. I used to live there. And I will say, you know, I think there is a lot that San Jose is trying to do to become more dense and more walkable. But the truth is that if you go there and you try to walk around, it's very difficult. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to be dense, right? I mean, some places are dense in a kind of medium density way all around. Some have like a really big urban core and then, you know, outlying less dense regions. What's the kind of San Jose plan? Well, you know, San Jose was originally pretty small. In the early 1900s, it was really only about 17 square miles large. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, when highways came in, it really expanded sort of exponentially. And the city became predominantly built around cars, which is why... There are so many suburbs and areas where you'll you'll sort of you you can't really walk. You have to take a car because most of the city is planned that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. I I couldn't believe it when I was looking at different cities and when their housing stock was put in. San Jose is a really, really new city and one that's built really right alongside the, the burst of highways and suburban development that happens after the war. So, Chris, we end up with a San Jose that's... 181 square miles. That's close to four times the size of San Francisco. 90% of the housing or more is zoned for single-family homes. Um, How do you take a place like that and try and turn it into a city that, as many people acknowledge, um, it needs to be a little more dense, needs to be a little more walkable? I I think that's a big challenge. Um, It's a big challenge uh, in part because People who live in single-family home neighborhoods uh, tend to like their neighborhoods the way they are, and they will usually, not always, but usually resist changes that would allow uh, apartment buildings to be built in those neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's also a a challenge because, uh, depending on the the layout of the streets, um, the the tapestry or the framework of the streets may not have great connectivity for for walkability Mm -hmm. or transit. Uh, uh, designs like cul-de-sacs, which were often popular in the era of post-war single-family home development, are not designs that are conducive to uh, uh, moving through neighborhoods. And and then finally, uh, there are uh, real questions about uh, how uh, demand for housing is changing in the uh, post-COVID era as more people work from home, they're willing to commute longer distances mm-hmm. and they want more space. And that desire for more space uh, uh, is, is in some tension with uh, policies that are designed to encourage uh, denser development of smaller homes. Yeah. So, Aditi, let's go back a little bit in time to this kind of concept that San Jose began to develop of the urban village. So what were those supposed to be? And are there any down in San Jose that have been implemented? Yeah, I mean, so the urban village concept is basically a sort of like rejection almost to the land use planning that led to 90 percent of the city being zoned for single family homes. There was a real desire. And I think there still is for, you know, an area to be walkable and for you to just pop down for a cup of coffee and then be on your way to work and you can walk to work and maybe Mm -hmm. there's a transit station nearby. Um You know, the urban planning model started a really long time ago, several decades ago, 
uh, or I guess uh, a decade ago. Um, but what it has amounted to is kind of not much. The The truth is that urban planning, um, you know, the way that it urban villages, the way that it's been done is really, really difficult. Um, I heard from so many developers who said that, you know, the urban village plan is like really, really difficult to plan around. There are a lot of, you know, moving parts and qualifications that a project needs to meet. Um, right now, there are some urban villages that are in San Jose, but I would say one of the most walkable ones is Santana Row. Um, and that one was really developer led. It wasn't really led by the city. Mm. Uh, Michael Brio, Deputy Director of of Planning for the City of San Jose, how would you narrate this history of the urban, you know, the creation of the concept of the urban village and its sort of enactment in the city policy and then how the implementation has gone? Yeah, I mean, Alexis, you kind of nailed the the longer term history of um, San Jose. I will say that the vision of San Jose um, in the 50s, 60s and 70s, up until the early 70s, was to be the Los Angeles of Northern California. Mm -hmm. And I think we succeeded in that. Yeah, so nailed it. <laughs> it was very much like a San Fernando Valley. I'm from L.A. originally. Yeah. So so I think in the mid-70s, there was a really a pushback that was a, initially started for more fiscal reasons because the city was sprawling so quickly it couldn't provide services to residents. And then it kind of morphed into more environmental and good planning reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've had a, a sort of a, what was called smart growth infill approach going back, really starting in the early mid-70s. Hmm. Um but I think the mo- latest iteration was the urban villages. And one of the reasons for that is that really about by about the year 2000, San Jose didn't really have vacant land anymore. We were doing kind of smart growth, higher densities and by converting older industrial areas and by converting that, believe it or not, there was still some greenfield orchard farmland left that we were converting mm-hmm. or the Communications Hill, for example, which is dairy, uh, dairy land, the mm-hmm. hill. So, um, but then the then it became really challenging because we have an urban growth boundary that's been around for a while for good reasons, um, and we didn't have vacant land anymore, right? We're not like Chicago or or let alone Detroit that has brown mm-hmm. ever. So we were like, well, what are we? How are we going to grow this city? What's an environmentally sustainable way to grow the city to make it more walkable and bikeable? Previous efforts have been focused more on transit-oriented development, transit, and we kind of shifted. Yes, that and. And how do we mix up the urban fabric? And given that the majority of land in San Jose is zoned for single family homes, we, we were very constrained. And so what we the concept we came up with is really how to reimagine and re redevelop our, our commercial corridors that generally are in very good transit, sometimes not, but they all have some kind of transit, or adjacent to light rail and heavy rail to create a more um ur, you know, urban mixed up fabric where mm-hmm. people many of their daily needs um, by walking or biking, taking transit, or even driving. Like a lot of people are going to still drive. But just but a few minutes, not half an hour. Minutes. Right. Yeah, yeah not, not, not a long distance. And the other part of it, which has been challenging, is that, you know, so much of San, you know, San Jose is the bedroom for Silicon Valley, more so than it's the capital of jobs for Silicon Valley. And we're trying to write that ship. And so it's about also not just providing coffee shops and restaurants and schools and, um, you know, grocery stores and laundry mats and all those things that people need in their daily life, but also could we provide space for people to work closer to home? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's part of the, the village. Yeah. You know, when I look around the denser neighborhoods of San Francisco and the East Bay, um, 
and, and I, you know, or my own neighborhood, you know, there's all kinds of little, small apartment buildings scattered through. There's back houses. There's all this kind of secret density. A lot of it, you know, particularly in the East Bay, looks like a single-family neighborhood. But then if you actually go down the street, you say, like, oh, that's a duplex. That has an ADU in the back. That's actually a small apartment building, blah, blah, blah. Um, San Jose doesn't seem like it's been able to have that, right? And some of that is old. Those things were grandfathered in even before the zoning laws and uh, made these things more difficult. I mean, if you just got rid of the single-family zoning, would that naturally happen or have, have, have things sufficiently shifted for developers that that wouldn't naturally happen, Michael? Well, that's a really good question. So about um, three years ago, um, we did we we were going down the road of what people called eliminating single family um, mm-hmm. zoning. There's a little more nuance in that, but allowing gentle density, maybe up to fourplexes in single family neighborhoods. And we did a lot of we did an economic analysis of that. We hired strategic economics actually to do that work for us. And um, what we found was that. One, if you, you know, townhomes are kind of like the Big Mac out. You can build townhomes, guarantee profit. They'll, they'll build those, right? Um, but townhomes are not cheap. They're, they're not affordable to people in the middle. So we were looking at, um, you know, eight plexes, six plexes. And um, could you weave those into existing neighborhoods? And those were um, affordable uh, yeah. without the middle. Um, now, I think it was a very contentious proposal that we were moving forward, and along came SB9, and I think the city council was like, whoo, the state's doing that, let's hold this conversation, and so um, SB9 was put into place. That being said, you know, there's some challenges with SB9 that are, I don't think... That allows you, SB9 allows you to split a lot and things like that, right? Correct, yeah, you could do a duplex, or you can split the lot and do two two units on each on each lot in a zone. So I think we, we our housing element currently is looking at, you know, not applying kind of missing middle housing or gentle density necessarily in all single family neighborhoods, but looking at areas adjacent to urban villages and growth mm-hmm. areas, single family neighborhoods that into arterials, we have houses you know, facing a six lane arterial, and looking at where it might make sense yeah. to allow, you know, small apartments again, townhomes yeah. or duplexes sort of get at that because the way San Jose well hold that thought hold that thought for one sec Michael we're going to be back right after the break we were joined by Michael Brio Deputy Director of Planning for the City of San Jose giving us a little master class here and why it's hard to build density Chris Elmendorf Professor of the University uh, at the University of California Davis School of Law and Aditi Bunlamudi a housing reporter here at KQED we're going to get to uh, calls and comments for you if you live in San Jose is there a city you'd like to be more like email forum at kqed.org I'm Alexis Madrigal Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about San Jose's shift to attempt to become a denser city for environmental and livability reasons. We're joined by Aditi Bunlamudi, housing reporter with KQED, who's done reporting on this for Sold Out, our one of our big podcasts, among other things. Also, Chris Elmendorf, a professor at the University of California Davis School of Law, and Michael Brio, deputy director of planning with the city of San Jose. We'd love to hear from you, uh, and we're already getting some uh, comments back. Do you live in a denser San Jose neighborhood? What's it like? Um, have you seen that change You know, since you moved there? And maybe you're a San Jose resident who opposes density. I mean, if so, uh, why is that? You can email us, forum at kqed.org. Find us on the different social channels. You can also give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Gregory tweets, for example, San Jose already has pockets of walkability like downtown West where I live. I gave up my car a few years ago and I'm able to do everything by walking or biking with the occasional ride share. That's nice. Uh, must be good to, uh, to hear, Michael, that there's some folks who are able to get there. Um, Chris Elmendorf, I wanted to uh, get your perspective on a couple of things that Michael was saying, in particular about you know, trying to build, you know, quote unquote, gentle density. When I think of that kind of housing, I think of what places like Seattle and the Northwest have done, where it seems like in certain neighborhoods, there's like a townhouse every three houses. Um, has that strategy of kind of gentle infill density been successful other places? Uh, there are two places where it's been uh, notably successful, uh, one of which is New Zealand, hmm. um, uh, which passed a uh, nationwide law that allowed uh, dense housing near transit and then gentle density housing in uh, single family home neighborhoods. And that unleashed a boom of construction hmm. of triplex style uh, or, or quadplex style housing in single family neighborhoods. And there's actually been some, some significant pushback to that. And the conservative party is now uh, challenging and trying to roll back that law, uh, but it, but it unequivocally worked. Um, another place that has had uh, real success with infill development, ironically, is Houston, Texas. Hmm. Everybody thinks of Houston as um kind of LA on steroids, sprawl after sprawl after sprawl, right? There's three rings of, of uh, encircling uh, uh, highway systems. But in the downtown or central city core, uh, about 20 years ago, I think, uh, the, the city legalized uh, uh, small Kind of everything, <laughs> right? Small, For whatever. Yeah. Well, well, people say Houston doesn't have zoning, but that's not quite right because they have minimum lot size restrictions and parking requirements that function like zoning. Ah. And... Uh, but they eliminated those minimum lot size requirements uh, in the inner core, and that led to a boom in small lot townhome development. So uh, what had been uh, older single family homes on large lots were replaced with four townhomes um, on much smaller lots. Yeah. Uh, and that greatly increased uh, the density of habitation in the in the uh, center of, of, of Houston. Um, before we get to some of the environmental issues, I want to bring in Anne in San Jose. Welcome, Anne. 
Hi, thank you. Um, I just wanted to say Silicon Valley is the land of entrepreneurs and side hustlers and um, visiting throughout many neighborhoods. What you do see cropping up is the anticipation and desire for um, more permitting, even in single family homes. One of the main um, things that we've seen really take some traction is like the Mako. Um, what, what's that? Can you describe that for us? Yeah. Basically, it's a micro-enterprise home kitchen operations, which allow private homes to actually do businesses in a restaurant kind of style with mm-hmm. a limitation about what they go and cook and basically are able to sell to people along with, like, uh, you know, the uh, permit and ability to go and sell off the sidewalk or for food pickup. If we're able to go and do more things of that nature where, you know, you have your local co-operating salon or daycare and or you know somebody's got a gig where they know how to design t-shirts and then you can walk within you know Mm -hmm. the neighborhood Mm -hmm. to go and do that in each other's homes and also on top of that the neighboring you know within half a mile radius is a park that kind of sits there and if we organize as a city like more festivals in conjunction with these um permits that are allowed you know in these cul-de-sacs I can tell you right now, people may want to have their homes a certain way and landscape a certain way, but everybody wants their side hustle and everybody wants to be their own little business. Yeah. So please have it happen. Yeah. And I I appreciate that. I mean, one of the things that I love about um, your call, Anne, is it kind of seems to build on something people are already doing, right? I mean, one of the things that you hear um, that I've heard from, from people is how many different little home cooks are operating um, in you know a lot of the the different Asian communities of San Jose, and that that's really like a place where you can get this like amazing food and have these different kinds of experiences, and so it's already something that's happening, right? And and we know it's something that people want, and that does add maybe not density of housing, but kind of um, to borrow a, a phrase from Noni Session, who works in in West Oakland, density of use, right? Like this people coming through, people moving around each other. Michael Brio, um, how do you find things like that? where you can use the government apparatus to encourage something that already has been shown to be something people want? Well, I mean, yeah, so the, the, the rules have been changed. There's been rule change. And uh, and so, yeah, people can run small restaurants out of their homes now. Um, and I don't know how much people are taking advantage of that, honestly, but I'm, I'm sure that they are. And then, you know, the people can run small businesses out of their home as well. There's definitely, that's allowed too. So, mm-hmm. Um, so that is happening in often immigrant communities. I mean, if you go, like, for example, when I went to Mexico not that long ago, everybody's got, like, one one house is selling you know, produce out of their mm-hmm. garage, and their house sends laundry stuff. And so I think y- you do see that, and there are some provisions for that. Um, you know, we encourage that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree. Um, and one of the things that's made it challenging, I think there's been interest in converting small, you know, houses on – you know, kind of on business districts to uh, to commercial uses um, or restaurants and whatnot. And we had parking standards that says, well, you can do that use there or you can do that there, but where are you going to put the parking? Uh, right. But San Jose got rid of their parking requirements um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, last fall. So we don't have parking requirements anymore. So go ahead and <laughs> occupy that old house on a, on a neighborhood business district and you can go ahead and put a restaurant. Yeah. So um, Aditi, I wanted you to talk a little bit about the environmental side of why a place might want to become denser. So you're 
Uh, Story on Tennessee was actually part of KQED's you know, housing podcast, Sold Out, which was looking at the intersection of housing and climate change. So what was the connection that you found between kind of denser cities and climate change specifically? Yeah, I mean, so basically, like, it's, you know, it's, you can kind of see how if a city is sprawling and if your place of work or your office is sort of in another city, then you have to drive, right? And the Bay Area is actually home to some of the largest share of super commuters in the country, which is basically where you commute more than 90 minutes one way to get to the office. Um and of course, you know, now that we have uh, work from home and, and things like that, it's a little less common that people would be commuting that far every day. But it definitely happens. And especially after the pandemic, when people, you know, moved farther away, there are even more people who are commuting these really, really long distances. Now, of course, when you're spending a lot of time in the car, you're emitting carbon. Um, that's not great for the environment. And it only speeds up climate change. Um So this is a really big issue where when we create walkable cities where people don't have to drive everywhere, it ends up being good for the planet. And in my reporting, it also um, I I found that it's also, you know, oftentimes good for the residents. It's like, you know, there are studies that show that living in a walkable community is good for your health. It's, you know, good for social interactions, for, you know, building community in general. I think a lot of us feel very isolated living in suburbs. But um, when you're in a dense, denser area, um, of course, sometimes that means that you don't get as much privacy as you would if you were living in a single family neighborhood. But you also get a sense of community. Um, I also just wanted to just add to a point that was mentioned by by Anne and 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 you know Michael talking about people using their homes as you know another another use case i in my reporting i found that there was a woman um you know so kelly snyder is a developer in san jose she also is a she teaches real estate at um at San Jose State. But she also uh, runs a company which helps people sort of split their homes and create ADUs. Um, And they were able to convert a home into a daycare center that was nearby a school and a park. And it ended up being this really nice, um, dense area, which otherwise looked like a single family neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Yep. I, I there's something about that where in my personal like ecotopia, that would be a major part of what's happening. Um, Paul uh, writes in to say, if L.A. is much denser than San Jose with worse traffic, why wouldn't a denser San Jose just result in just more traffic? L.A. is hardly walkable. Chris Elmendorf, um, let's send this one to you. Uh, that's a that's a really good question. And I think one of the challenges that that cities face as they as they become uh, denser is how they uh, will manage uh, parking and street use. And uh, when you reach uh, certain levels of density, uh, uh, transit becomes uh, viable and frequent transit becomes viable and people start taking transit. So the best example of that is Manhattan, where it's actually easier to get around on the subway uh, than in any, in any other fashion. Um, but Manhattan also uh, realized um, um, and it's been difficult to, to, to implement this realization that ultimately they need to price use of the streets. Um, and so, uh, they are just about to implement, um, over, uh, threatened lawsuits or, or, or in fact now filed lawsuits from opponents in New Jersey, uh, a congestion pricing system, mm-hmm. uh, which will, um, uh, require people to pay a toll 
uh, if they enter Manhattan during certain hours uh, when the streets are heavily used. Um, San Francisco has had um, considerable success with a related idea, which they call uh, variable rate uh, parking. And so in commercial districts, not yet in residential districts, but in commercial districts, if you're going to park on the street, you need to feed a meter. But how much you have to feed the meter depends on how many other people want to park on the street at the same time. And the goal, which doesn't work perfectly, but but more or less works, is to set the price of street parking at a level so that it is, there's always about one space available on a block. So nobody has to circle too many times or, or, or drive too far to find street parking. But if they go out at a time when a lot of other people want to be on the street, they have to pay for it. And, and so techniques like that to manage the use of streets are an important complement to uh, uh, greater density in the in the housing department. Yeah. Um, you know, Ted writes in to say, this is, this is, I think it's a really interesting point, and I think, Michael, I'll, I'll bring this to you because you're the one who has to kind of implement these ideas. Ted writes, the California Department of Finance says California population will essentially be flat from now to 2060. Isn't the need for more housing to serve more population, quote, yesterday's story? Maybe some more affordable housing, but population growth in California is history. I, I, I mean, there's so many things to look at in this, Michael. Couple. If we had more housing, we would definitely have more population growth. I mean, I think that is like unquestioned. We have oh, the, the so-called jobs housing unbalance, imbalance. It makes a ton of sense to me that if we had more housing, we'd have more population growth. Um, but maybe maybe that's not true. I mean, how, how would you think about that? Um, also, let's just, you know, um, asterisk that, you know, projections out to 2060 in 2024 are notoriously um, not accurate. But... <laughs> We need a we need some kind of projection to to work with here, and so I think Ted's question is really great, um, Michael. So talk to me about that. Like, how do you think about um, population growth in San Jose and the relationship that it has with private development and public development of housing? Well, yeah. So I think I think that Silicon Valley likely will, history is telling of the future, continue to grow and to be a place of innovation. And the need for housing is driven really by jobs, right? So I think, I think, I think that Silicon Valley, the job engine, will continue to churn on with more and more employment. I know it's a little bit of a, a downturn right now in the tech sector, but I think it will obviously come back. History tells us what the future might look like. So I think there's that. I think it is true. I, I do believe that San Jose is not, and the Bay Area and California as a whole probably won't have the historic growth rates that it had in the past. But I think things will return and it, it will maybe probably grow slowly and they'll continue to be job growth. Mm -hmm. But all of that being said, I mean, we have a housing shortage, right? So we have people can't afford to buy a place. Many people can't are having challenging or doubling up, tripling up in, in, in apartments. So there's a, an existing demand that's not being met without even talking about growth. And so I think we, I agree, we do need to build more affordable housing. I think a big, you know, one of the big sources of our homeless problem is that mm -hmm. we don't have housing that in other communities and other times, people who had, were living on financially on the edge could still afford to have a roof over the head. Now we don't have that type of housing. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I think, uh, so I think we, we do need to build affordable and we do have that missing middle problem where, a lot of people in the middle can't afford to buy anything. I mean, we don't have, we don't build many couples anymore. Um, and, and, and so that that's a problem. And so I think that's where the missing middle component um, comes in. I think one of the bigger 
questions is, you know, to the degree that there's going to be demand for higher density. I, I yeah. think it turn, but the question is how how much? And I, I don't I don't know. Yeah. Can I jump in briefly in response to that question? Uh, well, yeah, very briefly. Okay, it's a it's a it's an interesting question, and it actually highlights, I think, the two. Uh, origin flaws of California's uh, framework for requiring cities to plan for housing. Uh, one flaw being an assumption that we could determine housing need by projecting population growth, when in fact population growth is a byproduct of how much housing we're building. Mm -hmm. And the second, the second flaw is an assumption that the way to get affordable housing is to build new housing which is affordable because of deed restrictions or other regulations that control the price at which it can be rented or sold, as opposed to just building more housing, period, uh, which indirectly frees up existing housing, which is much more affordable so that other people can then move into those existing homes. Right. And I, there, obviously there's enormous amount of both scholarly and popular debate about that, right? I mean, whether whether you can do that, particularly in an area like the Bay Area that is has such a massive uh, underbuilding problem for a very long time, right? There is not a serious scholarly debate about this. Not among think, people no? who are empirically minded researchers, no. That like basically filtering works. Filtering happens both ways, yeah. right? Yeah. When you don't build new market rate housing, existing housing filters up. That is, it gets renovated, fixed up, becomes more expensive. And when you do do build a lot of new market rate housing, existing housing becomes available and relatively affordable. I think maybe it's a question of where that housing is, right? Like, is it in the exact same neighborhoods that it, people have been living in, right? I mean, I think that's where it seems yes. to me like some of the fight is. That That's absolutely right. Um, uh, we are talking about San Jose's shift to become a denser city with Chris Elmendorf, a professor at the University of California Davis School of Law, Michael Brio, Deputy Director of Planning at the City of San Jose, and of course our own Aditi Bunlamudi, housing reporter with KQED. We're going to get to a bunch more of your comments and your calls uh, after the break. We'd love to hear from you. You know, for San Jose residents, how can the city best accommodate uh, more residents or, or where? What neighborhoods do you think um, folks should move into? Email forum at kqed.org. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Over on the digital community, seems like there's good conversation going on there, too. You can go over to the Discord and check that out. Uh, one listener over there writes, Downtown San Jose is incredibly walkable. I'm grateful to work there, and I enjoy meeting with business owners and getting to know everyone there. I hope that the village's plan for Alum Rock, Bascom, etc. start to move ahead because having many downtowns in each neighborhood will definitely change the dynamic and create more community. Another listener writes, San Jose made itself this way in the 60s and 70s. Even if you correct the single-family suburb planning, the public transportation is so underdeveloped that a person cannot work and live without a car. The bus at my location comes once per hour and stops at 7 p.m. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more calls and comments right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about San Jose and its shift to becoming a denser city. Joined by Michael Brio, Deputy Director of Planning in the City of San Jose, Chris Elmendorf, a professor at UC Davis and School of Law, and Aditi Bandlamudi, a housing reporter with KQED. Um, let's bring in Ryan in Santa Cruz. Welcome. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. What, what's your story? Um, so, um, a lot of these things resonated with me and, um, I originally moved out to San Jose from Chicago about 12 years ago. Um, so yeah, relating to dense urban sprawl, you know, we love Chicago. We love all the, I mean, obviously the grid system, Chicago, getting around Chicago is amazing. Um, when we can, came to San Jose a bit different, but, um, pretty reliable public transit. We use public transit to commute to Palo Alto. Um, and then a, Around the pandemic, my wife and I, um, we lived in Japantown. We love Japantown. Um, super walkable, awesome shops, close to downtown. But we found ourselves, you know, wanting to start a family mm-hmm. and started to notice, like, densification of Japantown and the area. And we we just noticed that San Jose really worked for us when we were young and didn't have a family. And it, we didn't really find a sense of community there. And I ended up commuting a lot via car anyway. So... Pre-pandemic, it was taking about an hour or so from Palo Alto, downtown San Jose. And honestly, uh, so we moved to Santa Cruz mm-hmm. uh, in 2020, and my commute on a good day is 45 minutes. So, And mm-hmm. we found a better sense of community and all the mm-hmm. things we love to do outdoors and equally unaffordable but <laughs> and no housing. But right. um, So, yeah, we, we, I, li- I miss a lot of things about San Jose, and I want to give San Jose credit. Um, you know, the San Pedro market, there's been a lot of things downtown that we love and we miss. And I miss taking Caltrain or public transit to work. That's for sure. Yeah. Oh, man, Ryan, what a good uh, example of the kind of dilemmas that people face in in real life. Um, You know, Aditi, you talked with different people for your story. And, you know, I, I would say, you know, Ryan and some folks from your story seem to embody that kind of missing middle that we've talked about a little bit, where it's just kind of you know, small family, where do they go? You know, how do they afford something? What are the trade-offs that they have to make? Yeah, Ryan's story is so real. That is something that I heard constantly from people who were looking to start a family. Maybe San Jose worked for them when they were single or or even on the other spectrum. Maybe San Jose worked when they're retired and the kids are out of the house. But when you're starting a family, there is very much this idea of, you know, moving out, having a yard that the kids can play in, having community, maybe having room for mom and dad to come live for a few you know months of the year or, or permanently and, and have that community community and that sense of belonging in a place. And that is really real. I mean, I met a woman who 
cared so deeply about the environmental reasons of living in a dense, walkable neighborhood, being able to to use public transit and bike to work. But when it came down to starting a family, um, and and honestly, like the the promise of home ownership, it really only became affordable to do that out in the suburbs, out you know, farther away from the Bay Area. Um, Maybe she has to commute far away now and she has to commute longer hours, but it does mean that she has more space and she gets to own a home. Yeah, it's, you know, it's also tough, right? Because you know the problems in a in a dense city or a denser city if you're living there, right? right. If you're moving out to some other place, you don't know what that's gonna what that commute's gonna feel like, you know, month after month, year after year as it kinda grinds on. I, I it's it's a really interesting problem. Um uh, a couple other uh, listener uh, comments. One listener writes, walkable cities are not a sacrifice for a, quote, better planet. They have proven good for the local economy, for our health and investment and social fabric. Why else do people take vacations in quaint locales with cafe-lined streets? Those cities have been successful for centuries. Pucha writes, I live in Berryessa and I love everything about my neighborhood. However, dense housing comes with more cars per home and it creates a bit of inconvenience for neighbors. Um... You know, I on the environmental issue, Michael, because that is a, a big piece of this, what kinds of environmental assessments has the city done to evaluate what impact denser housing would have on, you know, the city's carbon output? Yeah, I mean, I well, let me just say this. I mean, the, the, the majority, I think it's 51 or 59 percent of our greenhouse gas emissions comes from transportation, which has a lot to do with that we're a sprawling city. So the again, as we've talked about already, moving things closer together, mixing up land uses, it creates sh- uh, shorter trips that would reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So much of San Jose's focus also has been to grow in those areas of the city that are relatively low VMT and not put growth in those areas that are high VMT. VMT means vehicle miles traveled. So in other words, Let's start to grow the city where people already have some opportunities to meet their needs without, you know, driving really long distances. And those super suburbs in the edge of San Jose against the foothills that are is car city that there's really not much you can do to get people out of their cars. Let's not put the growth there. So our approach really has been to kind of focus not just within the urban growth boundary, but move most of the growth within the central part of San Jose and on the transit corridor. So you know, when we do environmental analysis of projects, we are looking at like, well, if you, depending on, you know, what the mix of uses in the project is and the density of that project and where it is, we do an analysis of our, how much are you going to contribute to driving or or not. Mm-hmm. So we, yeah. yeah. Let's, uh, let's bring in another call. Let's bring in Jennifer in San Jose. Welcome, Jennifer. Hi. Hey, tell us your story. Well, I work for San Jose State University. Mm-hmm. And I can barely afford to live in my below market rate housing in San Jose. Because mm. it's just so expensive. It's paycheck to paycheck. It's so expensive. Every year the rent goes up and the electricity bill goes up. The insurance goes up. Everything goes up mm. every year. Mm. So what do you see as your options? Uh, I, sadly, my option would be either to get married uh, to maybe get a roommate. I'm 50 years old. I really don't want to have a roommate mm-hmm. um, or move. But yeah. the market out here in uh, California, you know, if you look around, 
it, you know, they say, oh, the housing's cheaper, but then the salary is less. Mm-hmm. And it just basically evens out. Yeah. Oh, man, it's hard. It feels like uh, just like the, the core dilemma of this place, right? It's like very difficult to um, build, a, build a nest egg or, or, or build more of a, of a life. You just kind of got to keep moving paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a grown adult professional. I'm making the most amount of money I've ever made in my entire life. Mm. And I can barely make do. And I really feel like San Jose is not even doing anything or California is not doing anything. They talk about it, but nothing's getting done. Mm. You know, the below market rate, thank goodness I have it. But every year I'm like sweating it. I have to fill. it's a huge application process. And every year you have to fill out a bunch of forms and give out a bunch of personal information, like your bank statements and tax information every year. Yeah. And it's every year you're sweating it. Yeah. Ah, man. So many of the uh, real dilemmas of of life here. Thanks so much for that, Jennifer. Um, You know, oddity as we, you know, think about Jennifer's story as well. It's like, how 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 is this supposed to work? You know, I mean, I think people did have a an arc to the way that life was supposed to to work in a lot of places, and that has worked for many people in the Bay Area who own homes and um, have been able to ride this this market up. What do we do for people who you know didn't get into that market and now are kind of on the outside looking in? It's so difficult. It's so. Dif- I mean, what Jennifer is talking about is something that I heard. In my own in my own reporting, um, you know, I was speaking to a woman who ended up buying a house out in Manteca, and she was saying that like if she was to move out to Manteca, she would and and she was to you know work there, the wages would be way lower than what she's being paid in San Jose. So it really sort of instills this idea that you have to commute and you have to you know either either commute long hours or sweat it paycheck to paycheck. Um, and, you know, there is an argument to be made that, you know, OK, so if you're living in below market rate housing and, you know, she's talking about applying for for all of these, you know, pr- programs, mm-hmm. um, that is deed restricted. But there is an argument um, that's out there that is saying, you know, if we if we built housing that is maybe on a smaller lot, so it's less expensive naturally, um, you know, if housing, if single family homes were attached as opposed to detached, mm-hmm. um, you know, that would naturally make it more affordable, um, you know, duplexes and triplexes and these sort of like middle density housing, it, it ends up being by design more affordable um, and it doesn't require government subsidy to do so. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like what um, Chris was saying earlier about about filtering this kind of term from the, the literature that says, you know, uh, the more new housing you build, that's nice. Wealthier people will filter up that way if that exists. If it doesn't, those people will move into other neighborhoods and, and um, displace people there. Right. right. I mean, I mean is, that is a real thing. I mean, I should note that, you know, right now, um, you know, the the very last station, I believe, um, you know, that, that BART is going to build is going to be in San Jose's mm-hmm. little Portugal neighborhood. And, you know, when I was doing my reporting last year, I was speaking to some people who live there now who are really worried about all the new housing that will inevitably built be built in that area um, because it's probably not going to be affordable to them. And that's a real problem, too. Mm, yeah. 
We have uh, a couple of uh, interesting comments about that relationship between transit and housing stock. Mark writes in to say, you can't redesign the housing stock in San Jose. You need to rethink transit that first meets the existing housing stock. Think Uber meets RTA, build an app and a fleet of small shuttle buses that go from neighborhoods to corporate nexuses. Then companies meet those with shuttles. Another listener on Discord writes, it's hard to imagine how implementation would work, but city walkability would be vastly improved if there could be faster transit on some of the expressways, like Lawrence Expressway to connect North Sunnyvale through San Jose to Saratoga, San Tomas Expressway to connect Milpitas, North San Jose through San Jose to Los Gatos. Better transit on these main thoroughfares would also connect some of the smaller urban villages and shopping districts. And another listener over on the Discord notes that walkability and reliable public transportation are so important for tourism. It adds so much to visit a city and means you don't have to rent a car. Part of the reason I love visiting uh, Chicago. Uh, one last comment here. Um, uh, the original footprint of San Jose, like downtown neighborhoods, Japantown and the Rose Garden, are definitely more walkable, but we still need to look out for speeding cars. I'm glad there are more bike lanes, despite the car drivers grumbling about them slowing down and creating car uh, congestion. We've been talking about San Jose's shift to become a denser city with KQED's Aditi Banlamudi, with Chris Elmendorf, a UC Davis law professor, and Michael Brio, deputy director of planning at the city of San Jose. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information on how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Um, let's go back to the phones here a little bit. Let's go to uh, Todd in Berkeley. Welcome, Todd. Hi there. How are you doing? Can you hear me? Yes, sure can. Go ahead. Um, this conversation uh, is an important conversation, but I, we're leaving out, I think, a very big portion of the conversation that tends to not be mentioned talking about housing, and that's wealth inequality and income inequality. That's really a major driver. And at the same time, while that's being left out, solutions on the ground are being provided by the developers who make the money on it, and they're building what amounts to being temporary housing for young workers uh, in our town, Berkeley. They're whole buildings that are essentially a hotel for tech companies. They're not providing housing for families, and they're building stuff that's not helping our environment because it's too tall, it's too big. And so we're damaging our environment, not building stuff for families, and we're ignoring the economic underpinning of this whole thing. Todd, let's take this to Chris uh, Elmendorf. I just... Judging from the the things I've heard you both say, I would imagine, Chris, that you may have a different perspective on uh, what that kind of housing is doing. Thank yeah, you so much, I, I Todd, think, for that perspective. I, I think it's fair to say that I do. So one thing is I think we should recognize initially is that cities have very little ability to control wealth inequality, but they have enormous ability to control what gets built. Cities do zoning. Cities don't do national level income redistribution. And if cities establish very high taxes with the goal of doing wealth redistribution, wealthy people will just choose not to locate in those cities. So I think we have to focus on what, uh, not just what are the big problems nationally, but what are the problems that cities can control. And if a developer is building uh, uh, tall towers for tech workers, uh, the developer is providing homes for tech workers who are otherwise going to be competing to live in the same homes that families want to live in. So. As, as you probably know, or you may even remember from your from your uh, young adulthood, a lot of 20-somethings 
uh, live in studio apartments and a lot of other 20-somethings uh, live in shared homes, right? There are four or five roommates living in a home together. And if there are fewer studios for those 20-somethings to live in or fewer tech dorms, whatever you want to call them, um, more of those 20-somethings are going to be competing for the same homes that a family would want to live in. Yeah. Um, let's go to Marek in San Francisco. Welcome. Hello. Hi. Yeah, so I kind of share Chris's perspective, and I almost think that in these discussions, this is kind of an elephant in the room that rarely gets mentioned. But I think policy-wise, we've painted ourselves into a corner in the way that Housing has always been touted as the greatest investment you can make, which makes it obviously then unaffordable. And so I think there's just a large contingent of people that have, you know, inserted massive amounts of money into real estate, both private and and corporations that are just absolutely against development because it will devalue what they already own. And I honestly don't have an answer how to tackle that problem. (laughs) Yeah, Mark, um, thank you for that perspective. You know, I just I wanted to know, too, it hasn't hasn't always worked to have homes and then as as the core investment, um, check out predatory inclusion like that concept by Kianga Yamada Taylor looking into how uh, homeowning for black people has worked out uh, quite differently in a lot of uh, places in the country and in a lot of different times. Um, Michael, to, to directly um, take Mark's point, though, what what do you do um, with a community that may be set in part for their own economic or financial reasons against a, a denser San Jose? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I know that we hear NIMBYs in the news a lot, and there are a lot of NIMBYs around the Bay Area and various communities. But I would say for the most part, the approach that San Jose has now in terms of growth and urbanizing is one in which the single family neighborhoods are really preserved and left alone. And the growth is going into the redevelopment of commercial properties and commercial quarters or urban villages. So we're, I'm not saying that there aren't people that are pushing back on denser development, but for the most part, it's, it's, we're not seeing a lot of opposition and and the San Jose holistically has pretty much embraced this concept of an urban village. We haven't seen as much development as we'd like, honestly. And I think maybe as we saw more, there might be more concern getting that these buildings are overshadowing people's backyards. But thus far, we're not, I think we're not seeing a lot of NIMBYism here as much as I think. I think the next, the next level or the next where, where we're headed next about where could you allow that missing middle gentle density inter, interwoven in existing single family neighborhoods, not unlike the neighborhoods around downtown where I live. I think that will be a more difficult conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Far we're, not, we're not seeing that. We've been talking about San Jose's efforts to become a denser city, joined by Michael Brio, Deputy Director of Planning in the city of San Jose. Chris Almendorf, professor at UC Davis School of Law, and Aditi Banlamudi, housing reporter with KQED. Thank you so much to all three of you for your insights in this show last comment listener writes i've long believed people are tired of sprawl while it once seemed like a good idea people are tired of getting in their car to go everywhere very interesting to hear solutions for overcoming lousy urban planning i'm alexis madrigal stay tuned for another hour of forum ahead with mina kim Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, 
the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.